Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We have a long stri- scripture text this evening. We're going to read uh, Ezekiel 5 and 6. Before we read our text this evening from Revelation 8 and 9. And the reason we are is so you can see where the writer of the book of Revelation gets his figures of speech. That you can tell once you read Ezekiel 5 and 6 what John has in mind when he writes Revelation 8 and 9. So let me read for you Ezekiel 5 and 6. And then we'll read Revelation, um, let me turn to it, Revelation 8 and 9, part of it. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and dividing the, and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes, and take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, you've not walked in my statutes nor observed my ordinances, nor observe the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, sons will eat their fathers, For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw, and my eyes shall have no pity, and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you. One-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I shall be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning. 
and an object of horror to the nations who surround you. When I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the mighty arrows of famine, which for, for the destruction of those whom I shall send to destroy you, then I shall also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel, and prophesy against them. And say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed. And I shall make your slain fall in front of your idols. I shall also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in the front of their idols, and I shall scatter your bones around your altars." In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and the high places will be desolate, that your altars may become waste and desolate, your idols may be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. And the slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. However, I shall leave a remnant, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed, for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hand, stamp your foot, and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by sword, famine, and plague. He who is far off will die by the plague, and he who is near will fall by the sword, and he who remains and is besieged will die by the famine. Thus I shall spend my wrath on them. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When their slain are among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the tops of the mountains, under every green tree, and under every leafy goak, the places where they offered soothing aroma to all their idols. So throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them, and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness toward Dibla. Thus they shall know that I am the Lord. So here you have a prophecy of Ezekiel to the house of Israel. Because of her long-standing apostasy, because she has continued to turn her back uh, upon the Lord, the Lord says he's going to bring severe judgment and bring waste and desolation upon all of Jerusalem and upon all the land of Israel. But even in the midst of that, there will be a remnant of people who are saved and who have been faithful to the Lord and who will not taste God's judgment. All right, now turn to the book of Revelation, and let's begin with verse 6 of chapter 8, and read through um, 
at least, uh, chapter uh, eight, 9, verse 11. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and the moon, third of the moon and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. And the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass or the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tail is their power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Let's continue to read. The first woe is past. Behold, the two woes were still coming after these things. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel that, who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And a number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how, how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. And the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do no harm. 
And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship the demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, it's obvious that when you read Revelation 8 and 9, it is a difficult section. And anybody who seeks to understand and interpret Revelation, uh, Revelation 8 in mind what must do it with the utmost humility and submission to Scripture and care because it is obvious with all of these figures of speech that it is a difficult one. And, and one of the most difficult questions is, do, do each of these specific descriptions have some underlying allegorical meaning that we're to find in Scripture, or is much of the description here uh, of these horses, locusts, faces of women, long hair, and all the rest, or or is uh, are these simply details of an overall vision, and it's the overall impact that is the important thing? Now, I personally believe that many, much of the description of Revelation eight and nine, particularly of these this army of locusts, is there for effect. And it's not there with to, uh, we're to look for some hidden underlying meaning, but it's the overall picture you get of this, of this disgusting and terrifying army of locusts. And so uh, that's the way I, I read it. That's the way I'd recommend you read it, is rather than asking yourself, what do all the details mean? Just get the picture and understand that, J- that John is describing something as hideous, as disgusting, as terrifying as he possibly can. Uh, now, this is where it is on this chapter that in many premillennialist commentaries on Revelation, their doctrine of taking the book of, lit- of, of uh, Revelation literally falls to the ground. You know, virtually all raptures say that the book of Revelation should be taken literally. Uh, we believe that the first verse of the first chapter tells us that we're to take it as something written in symbols and figures of speech. Remember the verse? It's not too many. We shouldn't. It, it's, we should emphasize this all the time. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. The Greek word for communicated means to write in figures and symbols and figures of speech. So right from the very beginning of the book of Revelation, whereas everything in it is true, it's not all literally true. That we're to look for symbols and figures of speech throughout this book. But the rapturist who says everything in it must be taken literally fall down on Romans 8 and 9. uh, Revelation. And I have read their commentaries in which they read about this army of, of locusts. That with all this whirling noise, with uh, uh, scorpion tails, shooting their barbs, uh, every book I know of by rapture says this describes the surrounding of Jerusalem uh, at the end of uh, a period later in life. And this is, describes helicopters, the whirling wind, uh, wings, helicopters, scorpion tails, shooting barbs, machine guns, uh, breastplates, tanks. 
well, what happened to the literal nature of Scripture? I mean, what, they say it must be taken literally, but here they find all this modern equipment. And so you can see that when you take the principle, the unbiblical principle, that the book of Revelation should be interpreted literally, it, uh, you just go into all kinds of fantastic extremes. So let's try to interpret who these seven trumpets are, what these seven trumpets are. Remember, they're coming out of the book. Chapter 4, you've got a throne. Chapter 5, you've got a book that's placed in the hands of Jesus to administer. That book is the history of God's covenantal curses and blessings upon his enemies and upon his friends. And everything that comes after chapter 5 through chapter 11 uh, are the contents of that book. So here we have trumpets blasting. And these trumpets are God's response to something that took place in the first part of, of uh, Revelation 8. What's the first part of Revelation 8? It's about the prayers of God's people entering the nostrils of God. And as soon as God hears the prayers of God's people, God begins to act on earth. So God's response to the prayers of God's people in the first part of chapter 8 are the second of the seven trumpets that begin to blast in the middle part. And remember that. This is God's answer to the prayers of God's people to vindicate himself. And these first four trumpets in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 8 are trumpets of judgment upon the world and particularly upon apostate Israel that was hardening its heart against Almighty God. And these judgments, here, this is the thing to bear in mind. These judgments separate the saints from the world and from apostate Israel so that the saints might not be separated from Christ. The purpose of these trumpets is to blast judgment upon apostate Israel and to blast judgment upon all of God's enemies so that God's people might not be separated from Christ by learning to peacefully coexist with their enemies here on earth. Now let's go back and do a little better job at explaining these first four um, trumpets in the last part of verse 8 than we did last week because we just gave it a lick and a promise. So here you have four, four trumpets blast in verses 6 through 13. What's the important thing about these trumpets that we uh, indicated last week? They echo God's judgments on Egypt. That if you remember the plagues and the judgments that God poured out on Egypt to liberate his people from Egyptian bondage, you'll recognize that this is, that's what John has in mind when he describes these uh, judgments. So the judgments that these trumpets are blasting on apostate Israel echo the judgment that God poured out upon Egypt when they oppressed Israel. And of course, the significance cannot be missed. Now, God is treating Israel like he treated Egypt. Now, God is bringing judgment upon that nation that he once rescued from Egypt. Now, he sees it as an enemy and he treats it like his enemy, and so now he brings judgment to destroy apostate Israel, just as he brought judgments to destroy apostate, uh, reprobate uh, Egypt. Now notice some of the figures here again. Notice there's the figure of a mountain. Verse 8. Second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. 
what, what is, does this have any particular figure? Well, in the Old Testament, mountains were figures for two things. Mountains, on one hand, were figures for the enemies of Israel, and they were also figures of speech for Israel. For instance, turn to Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 24 and 25, where the Lord says, it's always important to notice the context, not just pull them out of context. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil that they have done on Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Remember Babylon, Chaldea was the nation that destroyed uh, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. Now God says, I'm going to repay Babylon. Next verse. Behold, I am against you, talking to Babylon, O destroying mountain. Who destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. So here you have an example of a figure of speech in Jeremiah of mountain, and it's used for the enemy of God, but most particularly Babylon, for what it did against God's people. And he says Babylon will be a burnt-out mountain. But also in the Old Testament, the word mountain was used for Israel itself. In Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, he says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God. Praying for Israel and praying for the holy mountain of God is the same thing. And so here you have a picture of the four trumpets of judgment in which this great mountain is burned which can refer to the burning of the nations that rose up against the people of God throughout history, as well as the burning up of Israel herself and the burning up of apostate Israel. Also, you remember, we said that an eagle, translated either eagle or vulture in the Old Testament, are always connected with God's judgment. They're birds of prey. Wherever you have eagles and vultures, you have death, you have destruction, you have a graveyard. And then we also talked about this wormwood. Wormwood was a wood that produced a bitter taste in water. And why do they bring up this wormwood as in the water? We'll turn to Exodus 15, 23 through 25, and you see the story that he is alluding to. Exodus 15, 23 through 25. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Merah. Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the waters became sweet. Then he made, there he made for them a statute, a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases or plagues on you which I have put on the Egyptian. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, seventy date palms, and they camped there besides the water. So here you have a reversal of God's blessing upon Israel. God's blessing is, I'm going to give you sweet water. The curse is, I'm going to turn your sweet water into bitterness. So that you cannot drink it. See, this is God's judgment upon apostate Israel.
And then we have that third again, where it says a third of the people, a third of the water, a third of the trees. Now, remember, everything must be taken uh, figuratively and not literally. It's not talking necessarily about a one-third group of people. Where where did the the idea one-third came from? It came from Ezekiel 5 and 6, where he talks about one-third here, one-third there, all of which are being destroyed. Now, the issue is not whether it's a literal one-third or not in Ezekiel. I don't know whether it is or not in Ezekiel. That's not the point. The point is that John the, uh, the Apostle is alluding to that event and bringing this one-third notion back into his prophecy. To a, Does that mean only a third of the Jews? That's not the point he's making. The point of the making is these one-third people in, in Ezekiel 5 and 6 that died, who were they? They were all apostate people. Whatever the number one-third refers to in Ezekiel, the point is they were all apostate. And now in alluding to that uh, figurative uh, parable in Ezekiel, John's not trying to argue whether or not this is a literal third of the population. More than likely it is not since everything's to be taken figuratively. But it, it as in Ezekiel, is this, this is the reprobate people. The only people that are going to be burned up and are going to be destroyed on the land are those who are living in rebellion against Almighty God. Now, let's go to this... Um, army of locusts verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9 and the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit and out of it out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. Right now, the first thing we're presented with before we come to this hideous, hideous, disgusting, and terrifying army is the instigator of this army. Who is the one that instigates this army's activity and fans the flame of this army's hatred and hostility? It is none other than Satan, who arises out of the smoke, that this army arises out of the smoke of Satan's hellish influences. And the thing to him, and notice how big this army is. Besides being hideous, disgusting, and terrifying in verse 16, it's 200 million people. Now that's a lot of people drawn into battle in anybody's estimation. And the instigator the one who is behind it all, the one who's leading them in their hostility against the living God, is none other than Satan himself. Satan is brought out many times in the book of Revelation, but it's always under the sovereignty of God. Notice this time that this angel in verse 1 is a fallen angel. He's a star. And, you know, we use figures of speech today. You have an up-and-coming young political star. you got an athletic star that we use star in the same sense. It's talking about some particularly influential uh, person that instigates this hellish army, and he is fallen. So that's the great emphasis that's in the book of Revelation concerning Satan. This powerful leader, nevertheless, is a fallen leader. And he is completely under God's sovereign control. Look in this passage. 
at the way it emphasizes that. Verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He didn't take the key on his own initiative. It was given to him by somebody else, by God. Verse 3. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them. They didn't grasp it themselves. It was sovereignly given to them by God. Verse 5, 4. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. That the only activity they could involve in is under the control of Almighty God. There were certain things they couldn't do. Five, and they were not permitted to kill anyone. Even though these 200 million people would love to kill everybody, they were not permitted by God to kill everybody. Verse 11, they have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Abalion, Apollyon. And verse 15, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. So over and over in this passage, Satan who instigates this massive army uh, is under the complete control of God, number one. Number two, he is fallen. Now, where did John get this fallenness of Satan? He's no longer in a place of power. He's no longer in a place of influence. He thinks he is, but he's fallen from that place. Where did he get this? Well, you remember Jesus used these similar words. Remember when Jesus sent out 70 men to preach the gospel? They went out and were tremendously successful. They saw people raised from the dead. They saw miracles performed. They saw demons cast out. They saw people converted their ministry. And so now they're coming back to report to Jesus. And they're all excited. And they want to tell Jesus how successful they were. And Jesus' response was, in effect, I know. I know. What he says is this in Luke 10, 18. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, this fallen angel here, this fallen Satan in Revelation 9, didn't fall in Revelation 9. The Greek is written in such a way that this is something that's already happened to him. And so what Jesus is saying here to the people that came back preaching the gospel so successfully, explaining uh, how many people were saved and how many miracles were wrought and demons cast out, Jesus said, I'll tell you why it all happened. While you were preaching, I saw in my mind's eye Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I saw this man, this person of power and influence fall while you were preaching. I think one of the problems with much of evangelical Christianity today is we give Satan too much credit. What's the, what's the book of Hal Lindsey? Satan is alive and well on planet earth. Well, he's alive, but he's not well. He's got his head crushed in. Because the Bible says that Jesus would come to crush the serpent's head. Uh, God isn't worried about Satan. Uh, Satan is no threat to God. Satan has no divine characteristics. Satan is not omniscient. He's not uh, omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's a limited creature that has superior strength than that of human beings. But he not only is limited by virtue of the fact that he's created, he is, has, his power has even more, been more greatly restrained by two things. 
by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, whatever power Satan had before his death was greatly curtailed. And Satan did have more power before Christ's death. Because the Bible says, as we get on later toward the end of the book of Revelation, that, that Satan was able to deceive the nations. Whereas after the death and resurrection of Christ, he was not able to deceive the nations anymore. You say, well, wait, you're saying Satan's not deceiving the nations today? Not like he did in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, if you were going to be a Christian, you had to be in Israel. More or less. There were some exceptions. But the one place in all the world where you could receive salvation was in the nation of Israel. All the other nations of the world were in unbelief. All were in darkness except for conspicuous exceptions here and there for a brief time. So that the the nations were uh, deceived in the Old Testament in a way that they're not deceived today. Though there is much deception, there are millions upon millions upon millions of Christians in virtually every nation upon the face of this earth. Who knows how many millions of Christians there are in Red China. To this day, I was talking to um, Gary DeMar the other day. And he said, Joe, you'll never guess where I've been invited to go. He said, I have been invited to go by the communist government of Red China. I have been invited to meet with them. And he said, I asked them, why do you want to meet with me? And the communist government said, well, it certainly isn't because we believe in Christianity. But we do like the effects. Because the workers, the Chinese workers who become evangelical Christians, are more honest and more hardworking. And we want hardworking, honest workers. So, Mr. DeMar, would you please help us bring evangelical and reform missions into Red China? Little does Red China know what may happen as a result. But the point I'm getting at is there's not the deception of the nations today as there was then, even though there's much. There's still an opening of the gospel all over the world. So Satan here is the instigator of this army, and uh, he's fallen. You remember what Jesus said in John 12, 31? Interesting statement. He says, now, N-O-W, Now, judgment is upon this world. This is Jesus' words. If you had a red letter edition, I'll be in red letters. Now, judgment is upon this world that's in rebellion against God. Now, the ruler of the world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. So here you have Jesus saying, while he was still alive... In John 12, that through his being lifted up on the cross, he would be rendering a death blow to Satan. Now is the prince of this world, the prince and instigator of this evil world in rebellion against God. Now is he apaluo, cast out. The word apaluo in Greek is a common word. Let me show you another place where it occurs. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe, whoever believes in him should not perish, but ever have everlasting life. There's our word. So Jesus is saying, now, as a result of my death on the cross, you're going to see, you now are going to see the perishing of Satan. Not literally, but the tremendous restraining of Satan's power in this world. You see the same thing in... Uh, 
Hebrews 2, where it says that Jesus was incarnate and became a man, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were slaves to death all their lives. So it's not the second coming when Christ would render powerless Satan so that he's no longer a, an insurmountable obstacle to the deception of the nations. It was his death. Satan is not alive and well. When Jesus comes again, he will cast him into the fiery pit forever. That's that for Satan. But even now, besides being restrained by the sovereignty of God, Satan is restrained by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the first promise in the Bible that God said that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And so when Jesus dies on Golgotha, which means the hill of the skull, the, the, uh, the cross was planted right there on that skull to visualize the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that very first promise in the Bible. That he came to render a death blow to Satan. So Satan's death blow is received through the death of Christ and the way Christ continues to keep Satan underfoot is through the faithful preaching of the church. Through the faithful preaching of the people of God. You remember the way the book of Revelation, uh, Romans ends in Romans 16? It says, uh, and, you, and Satan shall be, be cast under your feet shortly as you're faithful in standing against the false doctrines and living faithfully and faithfully preaching my word. And what is it here in Luke 10 where Jesus sent out the preachers? And they said we had wonderful success. And Jesus said, I know, I saw Satan falling from lightning from heaven while you were preaching. So the way by which Satan is kept underfoot and defeated with no great influence in a culture is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this, this instigator of this massive army is a leader who's already defeated. He's already been stomped to the ground. He's already fallen before the battle starts. 200 million people following a leader that's already defeated. And it's because they want to follow somebody against Christ. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever to follow Satan or any of his devices or any of his schemes. He is beaten. It's already over. The battle's won. And Christ is the victor. So Satan is real. He can be a threat, but understand he is no threat to God. He has always been under God's control. His power has been greatly restrained by the death of Christ, and it continues to be restrained by the preaching and teaching and living out of the gospel. So now that's the instigator of this big army of locusts. Anybody that's read the Old Testament knows that locusts have played a role in God's judgment and in the prophecy of the Old Testament concerning Israel. Locusts were one of the things that, one of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt to liberate Israel. But turn to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. And you see uh, where John may have got his imagery. Let's start reading with verse 1 of Joel 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, O all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? 
Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten, and what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has invaded my land." mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine, Israel, a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So he says, because of the apostasy of Israel, there's this massive army of locusts that is going to strip Israel bare as an expression of God's destruction, and devastation. Now remember, we're not back in Romans 9, we're not at Revelation 9, we're not going to look for specific meanings to all of these these descriptions, but it's the overall impact. And remember these two words, what is this army? Disgusting and terrifying. If you saw an army of 200,000, 200 million locusts, the size of horses with faces and all these other things on them, it would be disgusting to look at, and it would be terrifying to you. And that's how God is describing the armies that he uses to raise up against his apostate people. Now, I want you to notice who suffers at the hands of this army. This is very important. Satan instigates this massive army, the largest one ever gathered. And what is it? To do well, here's two things it can't do. It says, uh, verse four, and they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. That is, they cannot do destruction to the inheritance of God's people. Whatever else they do, they are not allowed to destroy God's uh, inheritance for His people. The blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. It's the blessings of the earth, particularly of the land of Israel, that, it, that were not allowed to be destroyed by this army. So who else? Verse 4. And they were told they should not hurt the grass or the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now that's the vision that we've earlier encountered was at chapter 7 where uh, God says he's going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem, and the only people that survive will have his seal, people whom he has sealed, people whom he has rendered uh, safe uh, so that evil cannot get to them. That is, those whom he has separated under himself, the, the true people of God who did not apostate, the apostatize, those will be protected. And so here it says that this hideous and disgusting army, the only people they can do any Danger, any harm to them is their own kind. It's the sealed of God that are godly. It's those that have God's seal that are faithful Christians. If you don't have a seal of God, you're a rebel against God. You're not a part of God's family. And the only people this hideous army could do any danger to are those unregenerate rebels, those lawless, Christless apostates of the earth and of Palestine. 
this massive army of locusts unleashed a wicked power on the people of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by which they destroyed their own kind. They shot their arrows into their own breasts. And the lesson we learn from this is that all attempts to destroy the people of God are suicidal for the assailants. That here God raised up and controlled this hideous army instigated by Satan that would love to kill all the Christians and wound up killing all the apostate in Jerusalem and the Christians survive. And the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was not the beginning of the destruction of the church. It was not a sad day for the church. God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem so as to preserve the temple of God. God destroyed the temple of Jerusalem that represented apostate Judaism so as to preserve the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God cleared the way. God, God got rid of apostate Judaism and all the persecutions of apostate Judaism and would soon get rid of Rome so that the whole world would lie open to the people of God. So all attempts to destroy the people of God are suicidal for the assailants. As, as I keep saying, we don't have any record of any Christian dying in the fall of Jerusalem. Now notice the desperation and hopelessness of the victims of this hideous army in verse 6. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. You can just feel a desperation. They turn everywhere for relief, but to the one place where they can get relief. And that is Jesus as their Messiah. They're willing to turn to anything there were false prophets. They reject Jesus the Messiah. Yet within just a few years, there was false Messiah after false Messiah after false Messiah that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jewish people flocked to. They were willing to turn to anything to relief from this, for relief from this judgment except to the one person who could do them any good. Now notice the length of this invasion of this hideous army. Um, let's see, where is the, 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 the uh, five months, was it, where's the five months, oh yeah, verse 10, verse 10, and they had tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. Now, what is this five months? Here again, we walk, got to walk humbly with our God, this is one of those places. Why does he say that this army that shall be so devastating to apostate Jerusalem shall carry on its invasion for five months? Everything's figurative, remember? Well, here, here's a brilliant little thought. Five months is the lifespan of a locust. Five months is the li usual lifespan of a locust. Five is half of ten. And ten, I will get this straight, Mike, and ten is the number of completion. If you got five fingers, ten fingers, ten toes, you're complete. So the ten was the number of completion. Five months is a long period of time, but not excessively long. An incomplete period. And so the promise is that this invasion shall last five months, about the length of, a, of the life of a grasshopper. It's going to be for a while, but it's not going to be forever. It will come to an end. 
The persecution will come to an end, both by Israel and by Rome. It's only going to be for five months, not for a long period of time. And, of course, when we compare uh, this text, Romans, uh, Revelation 9, to Luke 21, 20, it becomes easy for us to identify this hideous army with the Roman armies and the besieging of Jerusalem. Turn again to Luke 21, and let me read a few verses. This is his Sermon on the Mount from Luke's perspective, and he is describing the fall of Jerusalem. And he says, let me begin with verse 20 and read down through verse 24. But when you, that is the people to whom he's speaking in the first century, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, by Roman armies, then recognize that her, that is Jerusalem's desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the mountains of the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country or enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to the people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles." the non-Jews, the Romans, until the time of the non-Jewish Gentile Romans be fulfilled. So it's easy for us to say, and honestly, that these armies that brought desolation to Israel in 70 A.D. are the hideous armies of locusts in Revelation chapter 9. Now notice these locusts have a king. Uh, verse 11, they have as a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, it's easy on the surface to say that applies to Satan. Very easy. But let me give you some reasons why I think that if it refers to the emperors of Rome, most particularly one emperor. They, that is these hideous, terrifying Roman armies, have a king over them, the angel of the abyss, under satanic influence. He has two names. In Hebrew, it's Abaddon, and in Greek, it is Apollyon. And both of those words mean destruction. In other words, in verse 11, we have a derogatory reference to the Greek god Apollo. Roman emperors up to this point and thereafter often claimed a special relationship to the god Apollo. Apollo and Apollyon are derived from the same Greek word meaning destroyer. And guess what the symbol of the goddess Apollo was? Anybody want to guess? The locust was the symbol of the god Apollo whom Roman emperors identified with. Nero, who was the emperor when the book of Revelation was written, who died in about 68 A.D., Nero imitated Apollo in the way he lived, in his personality, in his dress. Later on, the evil emperor uh, Domitian claimed to be the incarnation of the god Apollo. 
So it seems to me that this army, instigated by satanic influence uh, from Satan himself, that's, that's the deeper level, also as a king over them, that identified himself with Apollo, with Abaddon, and that is the Roman emperors, most particularly from Nero to Domitian. The destructive hosts of hell, inspired by Satan, had as their king the emperor of Rome. Now let me make this one point we're through. That's God's assessment of all anti-Christian civil governments. That's God's assessment of all anti-Christian civil governments. They are destructive. They bring desolation. They are an enemy of the people of God. They use whatever hideous and terrifying forces they have to destroy God's moral order and to put in its place one of their own making. And that's the way we as Christians must think. I mean, the issue is not Republican versus Democrat. The, inch, uh, the, the difference is between those who are sealed of God and those who are not in an evil culture. And you and I must not identify with or support anybody named Apollo or Apollyon. We must not support or identify with or back in or vote for anybody who is a civil magistrate bent on the destruction of God's people and on the destruction of God's moral order. That's the way we've got to think. We've got to quit being pragmatic. We've got to quit saying, well, you know, we have certain goals that we want to reach, but we're not going to reach them now, and so the best we have is so-and-so, or the best plan we have now is so-and-so, so let's just be practical. Nothing works except what is based upon the Word of God. And whenever we talk ourselves into compromising with or negotiating with or bargaining with uh, Apollo and his forces, we're standing against the forces of God. We must call things as they really are. And God's assessment of all anti-Christian civil magistrates that are built upon a principle of revolt against the living God and not submissive to him. He says concerning them, they are, first of all, his enemy, and they are the enemy of the church, and they are to be treated as such and not compromised with or endorsed. Next election, remember that. Now, what does that mean practically? That means that if you think like a Christian about, anti, or as God assesses things about civil magistrates, you will have less people to vote for. There will be less names on the docket uh, that you can vote for because you and I may not vote for Apollos or for anybody that identifies with him because Apollos is a bad destruction. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these highly figurative words. We thank you for telling us these things. We thank you that you've given us this imagery as you did in the first century to make room for repentance among apostate churches and families and individuals and nations before the door closes. And so, Lord, help us to use these ideas and these thoughts and these words, not only to bring repentance to ourselves and our families, but to our friends 
before everything fails. For Christ's sake, amen. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.